to Alice Barkley Cat. They are a queer POC astrologer. They use astrology to rechart a history of the subconscious, redefine the body in the world, and reimagine history as a collective memory. Their astrological work has inhabited MoMA, Philadelphia Museum of Art, Brooklyn Museum, and Hauser and Worth Gallery. In a cross-cultural approach to understanding astrology as a magical language, Alice Sparkly Cat unmasks the political power of astrology, showing how it can be channeled as a force for collective healing and liberation. In their latest book, Postcolonial Astrology, A Radical Genealogy of the Planets, they argue that too often magic and astrology are divorced from their potency and cultural context co-opted by neoliberalism, used as a force of oppression, or distilled beyond recognition into applications that belie their individual and collective power. By looking at the symbolic and etymological histories of the Sun, Moon, Saturn, Venus, Mercury, Mars, and Jupiter, we can trace and understand the politics of magic and challenge our own practices, interrogate our truths, and reshape our institutions to build better frameworks for communities of care. Thanks for being here, Ace. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your relationship to the study of history and myth? Like, where does the interest come from and where has it taken you? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Um, so, like, like the study of myth, like, you know, I'm kind of looking at all these things like Joseph Campbell and things like that. And, like, it's really colonial. Uh, so, like, yeah, I kind of reject a lot of it, just, like, emotionally, instinctually, like, when I'm kind of looking at it. Um, so, I, like, I wanted to talk about... Doing myth is colonial. A lot of history and myth is colonial. Or, no, like, a lot of the study of myth is... Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with just, like, Yoon, uh, Joseph Campbell, like, that kind of thing. And, like, a lot of astrological texts, like, a lot of books about astrology, like, it refers back to those things. So I wanted to talk about astrology in a way where it's not, like, it doesn't refer to those things, where it's grounded in, like, contemporary myths. And myths, like, it's so overarching. Like, race is a myth. Gender is a myth. Uh, so, like, yeah, how do, like, how do, like, what do myths actually do? How do we respond to them? How do we change them when we're recirculating them too? Um, it's a bit of a chicken and egg question for me, though. It's it's kind of like, was your interest with astrology what brought you to this conversation, or, or maybe you started off with just like an interest in history, and then that brought you to the astrological part? Was there kind of one side feeding the other or was it in tandem kind of in tandem yeah I'm not a historian at all like I never study history like I'm not an academic or anything like that like uh so like I mean I love to read books about history but like you know it's like it's kind of like when I was learning astrology too I was learning about this stuff uh, I've been always really interested in stories uh, like I've been writing fan fiction since I was a little kid. So I think like that's part of it too, is just like working with archetypes, stories. Yeah. Do you think that like the average, you know, cause we live in such a world right now that consumes astrology and this like very heavy, you know, especially with our generation in this very normalized way. Do you think that the average person interacting with, you know, their Zodiac sign should also have an understanding like, can you fully understand astrology without looking at 
its historical roots? Its historical roots. I feel like it's actually really hard to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of these things, a lot of archetypes, they're always changing. Like, they're never really static. Uh, so, like, it, like, you know, when you look at astrology, like, without looking at how it's changed throughout time, what you get is, like, this really messy collage of, mm-hmm. like, some things from modern astrology, some things from traditional astrology. Uh, and then, so... that's fine that's how people experience astrology so then like yeah you know like I feel like it's important to talk about like well what is like looking at time like from this kind of collage feeling like what is it doing too uh so like you know like with the thing with history like you never really know history like things happen in the past you never really know what happened Mm -hmm. Uh, but I feel like it's important to look at how you experience something uh in relationship to time too. You start the book off by exploring Saturn's etymology and there's a lot in there that emphasizes the sun's relationship to the earth and humanity, you know, the sort of immense and almost like pious like power early cultures posited to the sun, especially when you think of things as you really point out that to me in reading it just seems so obvious and I, but, and yet like completely escaped me until I, I read you um, things like, you know, the, the sun w- was linked to harvest and thus had an impact on agricultural shifts in society, um, you know, et cetera. I guess I want to ask you how you would position this line of thinking with our current climate situation. Yeah. The sun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I feel like we think about the sun so much now because like, well, I mean, you know, it's so big also. And you also, you always notice the sun, like, you know, when it's up, when it's not up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like we, I mean, yeah, we really feel it like, like the sun's pretty scary now because it's gonna yeah burn us out. There's talk about creating like some kind of artificial, like shield to shield us from the sun. Uh, using sulfur, uh, yeah, things like that. Yeah. How does it play in though? In because you're doing personal readings, right? You're an astrologer. Mm-hmm. You, you do yeah. personal readings. How is or is that in any way playing into your astrological readings? Given mm-hmm. like the planetary rulings mm-hmm. and the sun's role in that, is that mm-hmm. is that coming into play at all? Or yeah, yeah. So like, there's a really great. Ursula Le Guin essay called Myth Making in Science Fiction, mm-hmm. where she talks about, oh, well, like the sun is just one of the many faces of Apollo. Um, and there's this Roman guy who like said some like similar things where he was like, well, the sun, it's not Apollo. Like that's one of the faces of the sun. And then so like when we're working with the sun, like, you know, wh- whatever planet in a counseling session, uh, essentially, what we're doing is we're looking at like what the client wants this thing to mean to them and how it like functions in their experience of change. So the sun can be a number of things. Like it can be father, uh, like, you know, it can be the idea of father. It can be the self. It can be a child. Uh, like it can be light, how you experience uh, capital. Like it can be all these things. So like, yeah, like I feel like, uh, like climate change, yeah, it really just shows up in like folks experience of things as like uncertainty about the future. Um, and like this feeling of like, I can't even like really imagine the future almost. Um, so like, yeah, we process that. Uh, and then how we process that it's like, it's very different like per reading too. 
So that brings me to, you know, my next point. This is a semiotic text, you know, and so the common thread in the text is a sort of obvious argument that everything ever has at some point sort of been made up, like everything holds the capacity for meaning. Um, and you talk about the value put on, you know, as a good example, I think you talk about the value put on physical talismans, for instance, which then combined with social contracts and how it eventually resulted in this very powerful thing today we call money, you know. I'm mostly mentioning this as a great example of the power of interpretation. Can you talk to me about the relationship between interpretation and what the public would understand classically of astrology? I think I'm trying to be like subtle about this question, but really I'm just asking if you had thoughts for like non-astrology believers, what would you want them to educate yourselves on when it comes to the role of interpretation? Yeah, yeah. Like there's that like study, um, scientific study that's like, well, Libras and Geminis, like they're more affected by Astra or something. But um, like if we don't believe in that. Uh, and then uh, when scientists separate things out by race, like we believe in that. Um, even though race is not biological, it's like it's pretty magical, too. Um, so like astrology, like, you know, like there's this idea that like, oh, like, you know, astrology people, like they believe that these planets emit rays like microwaves or something. And there's like, there's some essays about that, but mostly it's not about that. Like mostly astrology is just about cultural production and is like happening in a way where you're like talking to your intel intimate lives with people. So astrology, it's used for counseling. It's used for flirtation. It's used for like all these things. And then it's, I mean, it's pretty fun too. Like, yeah, there's a lot of fun with astrology. So like, it's a language, like that's what it is. Like the purpose of language is to turn reality into fiction because we don't live in reality. We live in ideology. So that's the function of language is to make something that we think is real uh, into something that we can like kind of shape and mold. It gives us a little bit more agency. So that's the function of astrology too, as a language is, yeah, it's no different from any other language. It's interesting. You said race was also kind of magical. Tell me more what you mean by that. Yeah, because race is like, it's a social reality that's experienced as real, but like the, um, like the, like kind of like prototype for race is like religious, like it's very spiritual. Um, so like there's this idea of, well, race is like, you know, race science is very scientific or whatever, but it's like the, um, like before it was scientific, it was very mystical. Help me break that down. I, I'm not sure I'm understanding. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for example, like um, the concept of whiteness, like before it was invented, it was about being within God's realm, um, with as like being within the known realm. Um, so everything outside of like, you know, what was knowable, things like that, like that's Satan's realm. So it's like it's this uh, like really religious distinction between, uh, yeah, just like who is um, like neutral human like and who is uh, other so we talked a bit about um you know your role as an astrologer and how you have these clients and, and you do these sessions with them and I actually saw a twitter thread you did recently and it, it, it made me wonder I wanted to talk to you about it you sort of distinguished between um do you need are you you are in a crisis do you want to see an astrologer or should you be seeing a therapist? And you sort of distinguish between the two. Um, I imagine there are similarities in that both are quite emotional and intimate um, and intelligent. Um, is that fair to say as far as similarities go? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But so then to bring it back to to your thread, what are the differences? Because I don't think you would identify yourself as a therapist. No. Yeah. Yeah. The differences, like, I mean, and how I've experienced the differences is when you go to therapy, like, like, you know, this first session is usually like an intake, like you're expected to go every week or so or regularly, at least uh, over a long span of time. Like, usually that's not the expectation astrological consultations, like usually like you go for one session, it's usually like longer than a therapy session. Uh, and then you go to kind of like reframe things through the perspective of the chart too. Um, and then through the astrologer's interpretation of the chart. So it's like, yeah, it's pretty different. Uh, I think that like folks go to therapy and astrology to just process things to get a different perspective. Uh, so both just offer that in different ways. I will say that like one thing about therapy is that you know, how, yeah, how most people of color experience therapy is that there is some coercion involved. Um, That doesn't happen with astrology, which like, I really love that about astrology too. Why doesn't that happen in astrology? I mean, it's not like this institutional force where it's like, oh, you're getting diagnosed and then we're fixing you. Like, yeah, like that's not part of how the language works. That's really interesting. It's especially like as a person of color, I've certainly had that, you know, you, you play that game of like in therapy, at least of like trying a couple out, you don't always meet someone that you, that works for you is certainly not someone who understands you in your specific context. Um, and that's interesting that that just doesn't come up astrologically. Well, I mean, yeah, there's so much variety with both therapists and astrologers too, because there's astrologers that work really differently from each other. Like there's medical astrologers, there's doctors who practice astrology too. So like there's, you know, financial astrologers, people who advise relating to finances. Um, Yeah, there's so many different types of astrologers. So also like with astrology, like you want to kind of like know what your goals are for a session. Uh, and then, yeah, you, you, like you kind of try to pick the right person too. Does that reflect back onto yourself? Like, are you, I sort of imagine you and just, you know, astrologer mindsets every day. You're like, you wake up, you're, you're hyper aware of the planetary alignments. You, you know, you're even aware of the mood of the time, the needs of the different signs, be it their moons, be it their risings, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that kind of your brain, like all the time, you're constantly actively working with that reading or is, or is it not, or is it like labor where you, you know, work for certain hours and then close it off for the rest of the day? I mean, some of it's labor, because, uh, yeah, like, you know, I don't, I'm not, like, working all the time, uh, too, but I, I, like, I tend to know where the planets are, because we, like, we're always talking about the transits with clients, so I will just, like, always kind of tend to know where the transits are, um, but, like, if I'm having, like, a day off or something, I don't all the time know where, like, things are happening. I know where, like, the longer-term transits are, like, I always usually know, like, where Saturn is the exact degree um, transiting Saturn. I think the thing with astrology also is that um, it it doesn't, at least again, from a very like outsider perspective, I don't think it reads as um, a classical kind of job. It seems more like a, a lifestyle and a belief, which is why I guess I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you're, mm-hmm. you know, always sort of entrenched in it. Um, 
that that makes sense. You're not always interested <laughs> in it, it's, nor should you be. It would be exhausting. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's because it's care work. So you set boundaries around mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, I'm not constantly like, you know, caring for people like that's yeah, that's ridiculous. Um, I sort of, I want to talk about the sort of conflation you make between present day systems against very old systems. I'm thinking of the way you identify, you know, the Western cowboy figure as an example of the beginning of a colonial seed, so to speak. And, you know, feel free to chime in and correct me if I'm wrong. This book is so dense. Um, I'm fully prepared for it to intuit a lot of different kinds of readings. Um, but in the book, the cowboy, its economic and agricultural structure is aligned with the way individualism is sort of commodified with the internet. Um, so to me, these readings as kind of a blatant juxtaposition between the internet and American imperialism. Is that a right reading? Did I miss something there? Can you talk to me about that parallel? No, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that was from, uh, I can't remember the book's name, like from Counterculture. It's Counterculture is in the book's name somewhere. But like, yeah, they just talk about the like kind of people who were involved with the tech industry or the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. And how like before that, the, like, they were hippies who really romanticized the figure of the cowboy. And how would you translate that into like, our, our current understanding of, you know, American imperialism, let's say, or Western imperialism. How is that, how has that evolved over the years? What does that exist like today? What does that look like today? Yeah, yeah. I think with the idea of a pioneer, uh, like a tech pioneer, like entrepreneurship, things like that, it's always this feeling of like, well, you know, I'm like this, like nomadic kind of figure, I'm very romantic, I'm not socially accountable to anything. Um, yeah, so I think it still exists today for sure. Uh, it's interesting that you talked about social accountability. I want to read you a chart you list out, a contract to self and community on page 122. Um, I want to actually isolate uh this idea, this one line, I will never be afraid of precarity because I know you will be there for me. This is a contract with self and community. This is a conversation between the two. You will never fear precarity because you know I will be there for you. I refuse to profit from the exploitation of your body and refuse to allow you to profit from the exploitation of mine. I will never treat a debt or a loan to my mother, father, auntie, uncle, sister, brother, friend, or lover the same as a debt or a loan to a bank, government, or other institution. I will never let you treat a debt alone to your mother, father, auntie, uncle, sister, brother, friend, or lover, the same as a debt or a loan to a bank, government, or other institution. Can you talk to me about, I guess I'd like to isolate this idea of debt in our interpersonal relationships, not just our financial ones. Um, Can you tell me more about the significance of interpersonal relationships in astrology and the role of debt like I guess again I'm using fancy wording just to ask like what do we owe each other in our community what does that look like what is debt that isn't about money look like yeah I feel like I like when I was writing that like that's like kind of like a hope um because like you know like I go to the store I buy an apple and that apple is built with the exploitation with you know, like you know so many people um, so it's like it's definitely like very hopeful 
Um, I feel like I owe a lot to people. Like, I feel like I owe a lot to, um, yeah, people around me, like friends. And like, I had a conversation with my friend where I was telling them this and they were like, well, that's fine. Like, it, like relationships, they don't have to be transactional, but like you can owe me and that's fine. Um, and then I feel like, you know, that just like, it really shook me because like, you never hear that from a bank or institution. No. What, what does it mean to, to not have a debt repaid then in that way? Right. I feel like that's what love is, is a debt that's not repaid. But couldn't, couldn't we argue that that's like potentially like unhealthy like logic or language, right? Because also we, we deserve love, mm-hmm. right? And people um, shouldn't just be giving out their, their care, like you just pointed out, like their care and energy, like I've never said the term willy nilly in my life, but I'm going to say it now. Um, so, so how, how, how do we define those boundaries then between, cause I love that. I love the idea that a debt that's unpaid is love, but it borders so closely on um, exploitation. How, yeah. how do you know the difference? I think that consent's a big part of it. Um, Cause like, you know, with work, like we don't consent to work, like we have to work to survive. So then that's exploitation. But if I'm like, yeah, if I'm cooking a meal for a friend, like, yeah, I'm working, but I don't feel exploited because I consent to do that. When you first set the stage for this book, as I just sort of alluded to, you know, in the first questions, you, you know, outlining the literal sons, literal agricultural impact, the way it sort of led to the commerce of agriculture and that how that unfolds into financial inequality within society, you know, immediately I thought, yes, this thus abuse of power brought me to the POC experience immediately. And I knew that's what you were setting to do with this book. I read the copy, I read the title, I knew your work. I thought, but, but I thought it would be the sort of like long investigation of that relationship. Um, And I sort of thought you would be taking the reader to this contemporary matter of inequality, but really stood out kind of shockingly to me is that you sort of argue, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, um, that this concept has kind of been permeating since the very literal beginning of meaning making, sort of saying that we are the way that we are now because of how we have been. And then you also argue that a sustainable revolution, which I, I love that you know, terms, sustainable revolution must learn to live with the world we have instead of trying to restructure it entirely. There's a sense of total acceptance here, not to be mistaken with complicitness or agreement or anything like that, but more so um, the kindness even, again, to, to harken back, encouraged in therapy. Like what is, what is at hand? And we must accept that what is at hand is what is at hand. Um, and from there we can work forward am I misreading this yeah I think I know what you're saying and then yeah 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 I don't think you're misreading it like I feel like so much of like what the book is trying to do is like accepting well yeah these things happen they also shape us because like Mm. yeah like you know there's always this yearning of like oh I wish like I could go back to before colonialism happened but it's like no like we're all created by colonialism so like yeah there's some like self-acceptance involved um that's not complicity because like when you accept yourself then you also accept that you can change too so yeah there is some acceptance involved in the systems as they are in understanding the systems accepting the past happened uh yeah yeah finding peace within that 
No, like accepting that you have shame because of that, accepting the guilt because of that. I feel like it's not very peaceful, at least for me. Because mm-hmm. when you hear about the term accepting, I feel like it uh, implies something peaceful, something meditative, something calming. Mm-hmm. But to accept this reality, I guess in this context, acceptance isn't necessarily a comforting thing. It's it's a state of anxiety. But but then what makes it accepting? What what is that word in this context? Yeah, I feel like it's possible to accept harder emotions too, like guilt, like shame, um, and to just kind of like hold that and see where that leads you. To feel your feelings, essentially. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't, I don't experience accepting like acceptance as like a all the time comforting word. Mm-hmm. So, in working on this book, you know, you're also a person of color. Was there any emotional kind of uh, trauma might be too high end of a word, but was it difficult to come up against these realities, these harsh truths, these, you know, investigations of these disenfranchised systems? Um, Was there any like emotional component in that way that made this book challenging to work on? Or was it more liberating to be partaking in the conversation that you are? Yeah, it felt really heavy actually writing. Yeah. Like there are days when I was like, whoa, like I just feel really heavy from like research or writing or something like that. Uh, and then like I rewrote sections of it too. Like there were some sections that were like a little bit lighter mm-hmm. actually. And then I wrote them to be heavier because I was like, you know, this heaviness is coming up. Like I kind of want to, I want to give that space too. So yeah, it was pretty heavy. Was it cathartic, would you say? I don't know. Yeah, I don't really, I don't think I really experienced catharsis, like, unless it's, re- like, really physical. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I don't, I didn't really find it cathartic, personally. I haven't come across anyone who was approaching astrology from this sort of, you know, post-colonial model. And so I'm wondering if there's anyone you would recommend for listeners or myself to seek out, um, especially if we're, we're, you know, talking to a a POC audience that, that wants to feel more seen or inclusive in this conversation. Is there anyone else out there who's doing the work that you're doing similarly? Do you have references for, for that? Yeah. So many people. Yeah. Like there's, like there's kind of a lot of change happening in astrology right now where it's a lot more diverse. It's a lot more queer. Like it's been feminist for a while, uh, but then feminism is kind of changing. So like, yeah, there's a lot of people. Um, I'm trying to think of names like Giselle Costano, Oscar Moises Diaz, Shakira uh, uh, Thayborn. Um, there's, uh, uh, Taylor Ursula, like, yeah, there's so many people. Yeah. I would actually look at, like, there's an organization called MICA. It's about metaphysical, like intersectionality. Um, and there's, um, yeah, there's organizations like Fresh Voices, uh, will promote a lot of, um, you know, different people. So yeah, check it out. There's a lot of things happening. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here and doing this with us. Yeah, thank you for doing this with me. Thanks. Book will be available at St. Henry Books. Check it out. <laughs>